I think we can get started. Uh, uh, today's speaker is Professor Deborah Brodigam. Uh, she is a rare scholar, an expert both on China and on Africa. She's the world's leading scholar on economic relations between China and Africa. She's the Bernard L. Schwartz Professor of International Political Economy and Director of the International De Development Program and the China Africa Research Initiative at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Among her many publications are three books, including in 2010, The Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of China and Africa, and in 2015, Will Africa Feed China? Professor Brodigan's insights have been based on a combination of punctilious research, on the ground experience, and a detective's instinct for what's likely to prove true or false. She has built the largest database on Chinese loans in Africa. Not long ago, everybody knew that China was buying up vast lands in Africa, effectively recolonizing parts of Africa based on her on the ground experience, that didn't seem to be true. So she did very painstaking research and, and showed that that common myth just wasn't true at all. More recently, a common mem has been that China is deliberately getting African countries deep into debt and then forcing them to trade that debt for ownership of local assets. That myth has been promoted by the Vice President of the United States, the Secretary of State, the Assistant Secretary, and many others, including scholars. But Professor Brodigan has shown that there's not one case in the entire world where that's happened. She is a world-class myth buster. <laughs> On that last myth, I strongly recommend her article in the, late, in the February issue of Atlantic Magazine, which she wrote with Harvard's own Meg Rithmeyer. With that, I'll turn it over to Professor Brodigam after uh, some instructions from Nick Drake about the question and answer period. Um. Great, so those of you who have been here before know the drill. For those of you who are new, welcome. Um, there's a Q&A tab in the bottom of your screen. Um, you can enter any questions that you might have uh, during the talk there or during the Q&A period afterwards. We will have time to answer questions though we may not be able to get to everybody's. Um, there is an option to uh, submit questions anonymously. So please use that if you don't want um, to put your name in there, but if you do and you're okay with that, please also list your um, affiliation so we kind of know who you are and where you're writing from. Um, thanks. Shall I start? Yes, please. 
All right. Uh, thank you, Bill, for that kind introduction. Um, I accepted your very last minute. I think it was in the middle of the afternoon yesterday when you invited me to give this talk uh, out of appreciation for you and for your work, and especially for the work and the life of Ezra Vogel, who headed this series and, and invited me to my last visit here, whose passing leaves a hole in all of our hearts. So I dedicate this talk to him. If you've heard uh, anything about Chinese overseas lending for the last few years, you've undoubtedly heard the term debt trap diplomacy, or you've seen a headline about China's secret or hidden loans. You may have read that Chinese banks are largely responsible for Africa's debt crisis by giving high interest loans that have to be refinanced every couple of years. All of these stories swirling around in the internet fit with a paradigm that we can call malign China. And on the other hand, you might have also read that China's Belt and Road Initiative is win-win, that debt write-offs are common, and that China is, as Forbes magazine said at one point, a free money machine. A Zambian economist told The Guardian, Chinese debt can easily be renegotiated, refinanced, or restructured. And China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been saying for years, China never presses countries in difficulties for debt repayment. So this is the paradigm of benign China. So as usual, the real story is somewhere in between. China's overseas lending in Africa in particular, which is the area that I'm mainly familiar with, presents substantial risks. And it can be lose-lose. Lending, investment, uh, foreign aid delivered to very risky parts of the world <laughs> is never guaranteed to succeed. Um, it always faces the chance of a failed project and the pandemic has exacerbated all of this. At the China-Africa Research Initiative that I had at SICE at Johns Hopkins, we've been doing intensive uh, forensic detective work as Bill put it, uh, research on China's overseas lending for well over a decade. And I wanna take a, a minute here to show you our database on Chinese loans. So bear with me while I get this up. Um, ah, so here's a, first of all, benign and malign China slide. And then the loan data. So this is our database, Explore. And uh, there it is. So this is, we have 1,076 loans. Um, and as of uh, 2018, we had 148 billion. We will be launching our 2019 data at the end of March. So as a quick plug for that. Um, and as you can see here, um, the, let's see. Um, we've got all of the different countries here. If you look at Sudan, for example, these are all the loans in Sudan and we can flip over to see the projects over at this side. So that's just an, uh, I, an, a little taste of what it is that we have here. So I'll come back to that. There. So um, over 70% of China's lending in Africa is focused on economic infrastructure. We'll just stay there for a moment. 
roads, bridges, electric power telecoms. And much of this is essential for Africa's economic development, bridging the digital divide and just bringing countries together by building bridges over the rivers that separate them. Africa makes up only 4% of China's uh, 2.5 trillion export market, but it's over 30% of China's global construction market. So that's a, a substantial chunk. And um, as I mentioned, that some of the close to 1,000 projects in this database uh, will be white elephants and some will be failures. And furthermore, infrastructure, which makes up about 70% of Chinese lending, is notorious for corruption. Yet the evidence that we've analyzed on Chinese lending suggests that the fears about it are overblown. The level of vehemence is not matched by the evidence of malfeasance. So the focus of our research um, on Chinese debt relief right now is at two levels. The first is uh, at how, how China, Beijing and its multiple Chinese entities involved in lending overseas, how do they coordinate and negotiate debt relief in Beijing's distressed borrowers? And this um, involves analysis, both uh, what's happening inside Beijing in this fragmented authoritarian system as it regards lending, and then also at the country level. So the work that Meg Rithmeyer and I were doing with Sri Lanka, uh, work I'm doing on Zambia, research that we have uh, ongoing on Angola and so on. And the second part of our research is on how Chinese approaches to debt relief fit within the structures of uh, global economic governance. And uh, for example, the Paris Club or the recent um, announcement of the G20 common framework on uh, debt relief and debt distressed countries. Um, this involves analysis at the global level. So it's uh, how does China engage with others as part of that global set of rules and, and uh, formal and informal. And so we're doing interviews with Chinese actors, people at the World Bank, IMF, G20, and so on. I won't talk about that research um, in my talk today, but I could answer questions on it afterwards if you're interested. So let me uh, now begin by telling two stories <laughs> about um, that illustrate some of these dynamics. And the first one, I, some of you have no doubt heard, I tell this story all the time, but uh, let me just go ahead and, and tell it one more time. So once upon a time, a, a large, very poor country just emerging from a period of intense conflict decided to focus on development. We need to develop our ports, they said, upgrade our mines and build power plants. And soon they had a visit from a wealthy Asian country that had already become a major consumer of their oil. We'll give you a line of credit worth $10 billion, the Asians said. You can use this to pay for your infrastructure. Our world-class companies will build and maintain your ports, your railways, and your power plants, and you can repay us with your oil. So many people in this poor country were deeply concerned about this deal. They worried about borrowing so much, and they worried about losing their independence, but the deal was signed and soon the construction began. Now, as I've been speaking, um, I would hope that everybody at the Fairbank Center knows which two countries I'm talking about. <clears throat> and if this was a live audience, I'd be looking around to see like someone could put up a hand, but I can't even see the hands that are that could be going up while I'm sharing my screen. So I'll just uh, ask you to think, you know, which two countries you might be uh, imagining there. And I hope at least some of you are thinking, oh, maybe it could be Angola or Nigeria or Sudan or something like that. But <laughs> the little surprise here is that uh, the poor country that we're talking about here was China. And the wealthy Asian neighbor that visited was Japan. 
And the time was the 1970s when China was emerging from a period of intense conflict, um, the Cultural Revolution. And China was not credit worthy. There's no way they could borrow uh, for their major infrastructure projects. And they had a list of 100 of them that they wanted to do. And uh, Japan was concerned about oil supplies. And so they used um, the, the oil coming from China and coal to secure the loans from Japan. And uh, that was a win-win deal for both sides. So just like most of China's engagement uh, in Africa today, this was not foreign aid. It was a commercial deal. It was a business proposition. And just like most of China's engagement in developing countries today, the lenders' companies would do the work. Uh, Japan would win by getting business years ahead of all the Western companies that were afraid to venture into communist China. And China would win by getting modern infrastructure that it was then unable to build. So the dark side of the close state business relations um, of Japan's developmental state was the corruption of crony capitalism. And so too with China and Africa. But both China and Japan benefited from this loan arrangement for decades. Now, um, this mutual benefit arrangement goes on uh, in clearly in the Angolan case. So I'm gonna go into this data again to take a quick look at how Angola used $43 billion in Chinese credits, uh, much of it secured with oil to build the country back after the Cold War <laughs> had uh, exacerbated conflict for over 40 years in Angola. So let's take a look at that. So back into our loan data. And we'll find Angola. Okay, so there we've got Angola, uh, $43 billion. And then I can get this out of the way. And here are the projects. So if we look at them, here's just the list. Year by year, all of these different infrastructure projects, rehabilitation of the streets, refrigerated trucks, uh, water systems, water supply, boat purchases, railway stock, um, just you know, <laughs> irrigation canals. It just goes on and on. Hydropower projects, over you know these all of these projects that we were able to track down, um, and we can look at it by sectors, years, etc. So it's just, this is an amazing resource, I think. Uh, first of all, but but when you can see what Angola used uh, those Chinese credit lines for, um, it's a lot, and. Uh, it was helpful, it's been helpful. And so I think this is why um, uh, many of, the, of China's borrowers consider this to have been not a bad deal for um, paying for their, using their oil exports and pushing it into infrastructure projects that they might not have been able to do or might not have had the political um, will to carry out. Okay, so the next story I can get into it. Yes. <laughs> so this is the, um, until Meg and I published our article in the Atlantic, it was the, the untold story, really, I think, of the origins of the term Chinese debt trap diplomacy. And so this is, this is also, I could tell this like a story as well, once upon a time, and, and maybe I will. So once upon a time, there was a large and wealthy country that arrived in Sri Lanka which was then embroiled in a 25 year civil war. Your poorest province is close to such important shipping lines, they said, 
This is such a strategic location. We think you can develop a major port. Our leading engineering and construction firm will do the feasibility study for you for free. <laughs> and many in Sri Lanka were uneasy about this arrangement. It was much debated, but eventually they agreed despite the controversies. A year later, the study was delivered. We think you should build the port, this large and wealthy country said. It's clearly feasible. It'll cost about 1.2 billion. But don't worry about the finance. We have a plan detailed in the report for how this can be a win-win outcome. And I'm sure you know uh, which port. Obviously, this is um, this is Sri Lanka, <laughs> and it's a it's a Hamantota port, which uh, many of you know the name of that. But the large and wealthy country with the eager interest in building a major port in a strategic backwater in a country struggling with a bloody civil war. This was Canada. <laughs> And um, I like to tell this story because the story of, of China's investment in Sri Lanka goes back more than 20 years to 1999. And Canada was interested in building this port because it would have been a, a, a great contract for their leading engineering firm, SNC-Lavalin. Um, and they were working to support the business interests of this large firm. And as it so happens, and we detail this a little bit in our article, parliamentary election, leadership shuffles, and so on derailed this, this, um, this project and Canada's pursuit of it. And when it was revived, a Chinese company went after it, China Harbor. And then it was the Chinese government that supported the business interests of its large firm. So the Canadians had recommended a, a joint venture, a public-private partnership, a, a BOOT model, a build, um, own, operate, transfer. But Sri Lanka declined to do this. And despite having very little experience um, after the Chinese had financed the first stage of this um, harbor, they uh, decided to run it themselves and uh, it didn't go well. So by 2017, after another election and a, a new government had come to power, uh, they were facing a balance of payments crisis, which wasn't due to this port, but was due largely to the 40% of their debt, which was very expensive Euro bonds they decided to follow the original Canadian plan and to create a public-private partnership for the port. They leased it um, to a new joint venture, which was headed by China Merchants Port. And I can go into more detail about this if you're interested. But uh, the point is that the port finally took the form that the Canadians had recommended all those years ago. So um, Meg Rithmeyer and I, um, as you know, we published a, a little article on this, which has been getting a little bit of attention. But let me tell you a little bit about how we did the research. Um, how do we know, for example, how do we know all this about Canada? And nobody's been talking about that. And it wasn't easy research. So in 2019, I filed a, a Freedom of Information Act with the Canadian government. And it took a year and a half for this to bear fruit. But um, suddenly in uh, October, November last year, I got a thousand pages of all of the correspondence about this project from the Canadians. And it was just fascinating. It was a gold mine. So meanwhile, as a, all of this had been going on, you know, this Indian pundit wrote an op-ed about this and coined the term debt trap diplomacy. And he implied that the whole fiasco had been orchestrated by Beijing from the beginning. Uh, weaponizing debt was hardwired into China's Belt and Road Initiative, he argued. And this interested reporters at the New York Times. So that's where, where we've got this um, New York Times article here. And some of you may have read that. 
they relied on his analysis to write an article with the title, How China Got Sri Lanka to Cough Up a Port. So when, when I read that article, when Meg read that article, we were, we were kind of appalled uh, because we'd already separately been doing research on this case. So let me mention three things that, that we found that were problematic about the presentation uh, by the New York Times. So first of all, the New York Times said, and I'll quote here, feasibility studies commissioned by the government had starkly concluded that a port at Hamantota was not economically viable. Well, that's not true of the Canadian feasibility study that uh, was commissioned and that we examined. And it's not true of the second feasibility study, which was commissioned by the Danish firm Ramble, uh, which Meg examined when she was in Sri Lanka. And uh, Ramble received a follow-on contract after that study from Sri Lanka's Port Authority to begin designing the master plan for the port. And this is the master plan that, that uh, China Harbor followed in building the port. It wasn't some master plan that was <laughs> concocted in Beijing. Um, secondly, the New York Times said that China had retired Sri Lanka's debt in exchange for securing control of the property. And that's not true. Um, there was not a debt equity swap. Sri Lanka used the foreign exchange that they received in the privatization to bolster their foreign exchange reserves. Um, they continue to service the debt, which never went into default either. And then most surprisingly, the New York Times wrote that, quote, initially moderate terms for lending on the port project became more onerous. So, unquote. If this was true, it would surely be a clear case of predatory lending, you know, hook them in and then ratchet up the terms. But the exact opposite happened. The first Chinese loan in 2008 was at a commercial rate. It was uh, negotiated and explained the technicalities of this. But um, international rates before the global financial crisis were trending upward. And so they locked in a 6.3% fixed rate because there was Sri Lanka's decision. They thought, well, we'll get it lower because rates are going up. They gambled on that. It was a bad move. Um, but four years later, when they applied for the second phase of the project, um, they got a fixed rate of 2%. So the real story is the terms got easier, not more onerous. So this last point was particularly important for, Reg, for Meg uh, Rithmeyer and me. And learning details on the, these loans was one of the key things that both of us had been doing um, through our separate research before we came together to write about this. But the New York Times reporters were apparently so convinced that China had deliberately laid a debt trap that they didn't notice that they themselves had changed the facts of the case to support their story. And two years later, the same reporting team were still misrepresenting the facts in the New York Times writing in 2020, quote, when Beijing seized a strategic seaport in Sri Lanka as collateral, debtor nations watched with concern. So I went into some detail with the Hambantota story because it has deeply shaped how Chinese lending has been viewed by intelligent and well-informed people uh, in and outside of Africa, all around the developing world. We see echoes of it in Kenyan worries that China intends to seize Mombasa port to pay the debts of uh, the Chinese financed railway there. And the Trump administration, which surely knew better, stoked these fears for political gains, relentlessly warning African nations that as Attorney General Barr said, China was loading up poor countries with debt, refusing to renegotiate, renegotiate terms, and then taking control of the infrastructure itself. So um, onward. So the second, um, what I'm going to talk about now is our research on debt relief. Um, it, the Hemantota case is part of that, but that's just the most uh, well-known case. 
So, and I won't have a lot of time to go into detail on this, but um, we're, we're looking at how China manages debt relief and debt distressed countries today. And the outline of the project is, um, we started by putting together a database uh, on all the cases of Chinese debt relief um, in, in Africa that we could find, collecting almost 100 cases of debt cancellation. And, and there they are outlined here in this graph and several dozen of debt restructuring. And so we've, we've um, 17 cases of debt restructuring to, to be exact. And then um, we created analytical narratives of, of these different cases. So we're process tracing what we can learn about the negotiations, about the outcomes, uh, how they compare to each other, um, what trends, uh, changes are happening over time and so on. Um, we're interviewing uh, African technocrats, Chinese technocrats, um, the uh, people at the IMF, the World Bank, who were involved in these uh, restructurings. And we've been doing all this during the COVID era, so it's been challenging, but we're trying to learn who did what, when, where, and how. And some of that research, at least on the historical cases, we published in a working paper last summer. And we're currently tracing these debt, debt relief processes as they're unfolding during the pandemic. So. Um, I'll illustrate, the, I'll illustrate this work briefly by looking at um, Angola and Zambia. And uh, Angola, because it's the largest borrower in, China, in um, Africa, the largest borrower from China, as I mentioned, 43 billion, and it's about 30% of, of all Chinese loan commitments. And Zambia, because it has the largest number of Chinese lenders, and it illustrates what I'm calling now in, in uh, work that I'm writing and I'll be presenting at, a, at our conference on Chinese overseas lending, which will <laughs> be happening in April and May this year, virtually, um, Zambia's Chinese tragedy of the commons. So let's look quickly at, at well, these are the cases, the 17 um, debt restructuring cases and the different treatments there, just to illustrate what they are. Um, and this is Angola. So what we have here is, um, this is our loan data year by year. And uh, here I've pulled out the red, uh, pulled out the Angola loan. So you can see these trends here that uh, since a, a high of 2013, which was the year that the Belt and Road Initiative was announced, um, Chinese lending aside from the case of Angola has been going, going down flattening. Um, and if you can see there's 2018, so uh, it's been, there's a downward trend. Um, but that's not the case for Angola. So, so what's been happening in, in Angola? So let's look at, at the Angola case here. Oh, that's Zambia. Okay, there's Angola. So um, first of all, we've got here the oil prices. So, so you can see this is um, the, yeah, the price of oil here. Um, and so during this earlier period, uh, the Chinese lending is sort of gradually uh, going up and it's uh, following, you know, it dips down when the oil price dips down and then it goes up again uh, when the oil price is high and then the oil price sinks and it dips down except for this big year here. And so what we see um, happening in 2016 is the first um, example of how China managed the debt distress that was happening there. And that was through um, a recapitalization. And so China Development Bank signed a $10 billion line of credit, which recapitalized, which the Angolans used to recapitalize uh, Sonengol. And then they um, paid off early some of Sonengol's debts. 
and some they took over to the central government. So that was what, you know, a lot of negotiations that went on about that. And we don't have a lot of details about it, but that was a, a refinancing effort. And so it wasn't until um, later and um, which what's happening right now. So we've, we've um, had this confirmed by the IMF just in January that um, Angola is now the, the debt restructuring that's going on in the COVID era that um, China Exim Bank, China Development Bank, and the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China have all completed um, debt restructuring um, negotiations in Angola. And Angola is getting um, almost $7 billion of debt relief um, over the next few years from these Chinese lenders. So and we don't have a lot more details on that, but it's, it's part of the, um, the research that we're doing. So the second example is um, Zambia. And Zambia has been interesting me since we first started this research. And um, the, the reason is that because if, if, uh, if you can see in this graph here, oops. I don't know what, what you guys can see when I move this thing around here. There. So um, yeah, so this is, uh, the total Chinese loan commitments as a percent of 2018 gross national income along uh, the, the y-axis here. And then along the bottom is external debt as a percent of gross national income. And so that's a common measure, you know, how high is external debt? Uh, usually rough uh, rule of thumb is it shouldn't be over 60%. If it's in that 60% or higher, then that's a particularly um, debt in a problematic area. So we looked at, we, we laid the scatter plot out just to see with our data on Chinese loan commitments, where was it falling? And then we have countries currently in debt distress marked with red and countries that were at high risk of debt distress um, in orange. And this was um, from 2018. So it was before the pandemic. And Zambia was, was an outlier. We, we understood Djibouti because it's such a tiny country. You know, there aren't even a million people there and they borrowed for the railway. So it's, um, it's a big chunk of their GDP, but they, they kind of had to do it because uh, Ethiopia is the other part of that railway and Ethiopia is landlocked. It, it has to go out through Djibouti. And so um, that relationship between Ethiopia and Djibouti is really the politics of that, uh, that Djibouti loan there. Uh, Republic of Congo is, a, we can talk about that. That's a, another really interesting case. Angola was not in debt distress or it wasn't considered by the uh, IMF at that point. And so then there's Zambia. What was the story in Zambia? And so I've been digging into that because I, I find it interesting. And this is what I found out so far. Um, one of our One of the things in our database is that uh, there are many Chinese lenders. And so um, this, this looks at the loan commitments, just to give you an example, we have the Chinese government, uh, which is orange, they're tiny, tiny, you can barely see it. And then Chinese companies um, that provide suppliers credits are in green here. Um, commercial banks, which would be like ICBC, um, Bank of China, there are a number of other commercial banks now operating in Africa, they're in the yellow. Uh, China Development Bank is in red, and then China Exim Bank, which is a kind of um, bread and butter lender, is in blue. That's the major. But there are a lot going on. And so I had this idea, well, what is happening in Zambia? So I asked my team to look at all the different lenders in Zambia. And this is, this is, uh, 
what they found. This isn't a one-to-one -one picture, but we had 15 different Chinese lenders operating in Zambia. And so what um, I think this shows is I'm calling it the uh, tragedy of the commons. We, all, all these different lenders are not being coordinated in Beijing. They're all fishing in the same pond. And clearly Zambia was not coordinating it well either. And so my paper is going to detail more about how this happened. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting. It's by far the largest number of Chinese creditors uh, of any of our countries. The next uh, closest is 10, and that's Angola. <laughs> so uh, another thing that's going on in Zambia is, I think, moral hazard. And if you look at this chart, you can see over on the left that Zambia um, had more debt canceled during the debt cancellation period than any other country. And so um, it could be that now Zambians have gotten used to having the Chinese cancel their debts. And so uh, under the idea of moral hazard is they feel as though uh, it's happened before, um, it could quite likely happen again. And so they borrow more than uh, would be prudent because they think they're insured essentially um, by the, their past experience of having the debt canceled. So that could be going on in Zambia as well. So, um, in conclusion, uh, let me just make a few points. I think uh, if we relate back um, to what I said in the beginning about Japan and China, one of the things that I've noticed for, for many years since I've been watching all of this is that um, China is playing an East Asian game. Um, in particular, they're learning from Japan as uh, Japan became a capital exporter in its Asian neighborhood. Uh, many of the ways that China engages overseas are very uh, similar to how Japan went out in Southeast Asia. So that's, a, that's an important thing. And that's not well understood by people, by many people these days, surprisingly. And second, I think the West uh, in general, um, people here in Washington, others get a lot wrong about Chinese lending because um, very real concerns about over exuberant Chinese capital outflows after 2008 um, and concerns about that and debt sustainability, which have been relayed by people at the IMF and others, they're now deeply intertwined with uh, the geopolitics of the US-China conflict. And that's really unfortunate because it leads people not to inquire very deeply into what's going on. And I think we're only now beginning to do the hard research uh, of deeply researching how Chinese capital operates overseas. And um, I'm delighted to be able to be here and speak with you a little bit about our research on that topic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Deborah. Um, I, I can't resist comparing what's happening with the Chinese and lending to Angola uh, with what happened when it was just Western lenders. Uh, when I was in the banking business, there were uh, there were two lenders to the uh, to Angola. Uh, one was the U.S. Export Import Bank, and the other was Bankers Trust, where I worked. I was a political risk analyst and Angola was really risky. So I had to sign off on, on every loan. And uh, it was extremely profitable un un unlike the Chinese loans uh, because we had no competition. Everybody else was afraid. Uh, each year I'd have to fly in and, and uh, certify that nobody could blow up enough of the Angolan system to, uh, to uh, shut it down for six months. Uh, we would only lend 
to oil that was in transit or in process. Uh, the idea of doing what the Chinese are doing and lending against future oil supplies just wasn't even considered. Uh, and so we actually lent to two Western oil companies, one American and Frank, one French, and uh, they, uh, they turned over 95 cents on the dollar to Sonangol, which turned over most of the money to, to the central bank. And the central bank turned over most of that money to Cuba in return for uh, soldiers who defended the, the 24 mile perimeter around Luanda, which was what the, uh, the radius was 24 miles, uh, which was what the government controlled. So there was no possibility of this leading to development uh, uh, be, because there was no money for infrastructure, no, no money against future projects. Uh, so uh, that's a, as people are denouncing uh, what China's doing, uh, it's a useful contrast to know how, how we did it before the Chinese came in. Um, oh, thank you, Bill. That, that's fascinating. I've been taking notes. So let's talk about this offline too. <laughs> um, let me just lead off the questions by asking you, uh, you've done this very detailed research on, on the realities and myths of, of aspects of Chinese involvement. Uh, do you have an impression of the, the overall impact of the Chinese uh, uh, economic relationship on African development? The, again, the mem is, Oh, uh, the Chinese go in and take take out the natural resources, and Africa ends up with nothing. Uh, something you could have said about your Chinese China Japan example uh, didn't work that way for China. Uh, you, uh, it's an unfair question because there's so much uh, complexity uh, in this relationship, but. Uh, is this helping over, for all the problems? Is this helping development overall? Uh, let me say that there are two ways to approach this. And, and one is through um, looking at different countries. So in some countries, the, the like Chad, um, Chad is one of the countries that, that we've been researching. What the Chinese did there, and they did this in Sudan and Niger as well, um, all three of those countries have been, uh, they're oil, oil wealthy now. And they had been Chad, uh, you might be familiar, the Chad Cameroon pipeline. This is a big um, deal a couple of decades ago, the World Bank financed that and they put all these restrictions on it to try to improve, uh, to, to sort of force Chad to become better governed <laughs> through this, which didn't work. And so eventually they, they ended up, and that was also oil secure. The World Bank had an escrow account in Europe that the Chadian oil was being put into to pay back the World Bank for that oil pipeline loan. But so, the Chinese are also involved in Chad. They're a minority investor there. Um, they have a share of the oil reserves there. But what they did um, in part you know, to, to, I think, lubricate their business prospects there, they came in saying, we'll build you a refinery. They did this also in Sudan and they did this in uh, Niger. 
And so in all three of those countries, um, the, they now refine their own oil, whereas most of Africa is importing refined oil. Even Nigeria, it, re, it imports all of its refined oil from elsewhere. So, um, and these are problematic projects. There's lots of interesting um, struggles that have gone on. They're managed by China National Petroleum Corporation. Um, but at the end of the line, they, do, they are adding value um, to this raw material. And there's been very little of that, very little focus on that. Um, but the Chinese way of thinking, and I see this many, many examples of this, um, this idea of adding value to the raw materials and doing it in a sort of win-win way where a Chinese company and Chinese machinery are involved in doing that. So they're winning through the, through the export. Um, and it's not, I would say it's not out of altruism. It's like out of, out of um, a sense that they have to be able to compete with Europe, not the US, because we're not really in there doing that, but to keep compete with Europe by offering something better. And I remember um, the Chinese ambassador once in Niger saying, he, he gave this example where he said, look, the French have been here for 40 years doing uranium mining. And the value of, of uranium exports to Niger is about the same that they get from exporting onions. And he said, we think we can do better than that. So <laughs> the jury is still out, particularly on the uranium side in, in Niger. Um, but, but that attitude, I think, is interesting. So that's one, you can look at cases. And then the other is to look at what the uh, research shows. And we're not doing econometric research or not that much at, at my center. We're much more um, case study research. We find that much more interesting. But those that have been looking at uh, econometrics and, and the data is terrible in terms of, of growth metrics and so on. Um, but they do suggest that there is a positive um, link with uh, Chinese economic engagement and growth in general. But um, to go back to Chad, after the refinery was finished, the IMF reports on Chad noted um, a jump up in the growth rates for Chad that was related to the refinery and a, and a second project, which was Chad's first cement plant, which was also financed by a Chinese loan. So Chad stopped having to import cement from uh, outside the country and could produce it locally for the first time. And both of those were reflected in the growth rates that the IMF was, was looking at. So Chad ended up messing up on, on both of those projects, but it wasn't for the lack of trying on the Chinese side. I have a question from uh, Jared Mazanti. Uh, uh, is interested in whether the AIIB investments in Africa are similar to investments or, or loans by, by other uh, Chinese institutions uh, or, or whether there are important differences? I can't answer that because I have not done any research on what the AIIB is doing in Africa. And I doubt it's very much since it is the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, um, but that's all I could say. Um, Wei Liang asks, uh, do you see a different pattern of lending uh, by China toward developing countries who have uh, little or no natural resources compared with those that have uh, strategic natural resources? Um, that's a really good question. And I could, you could easily, I invite you to answer it yourself by using our data. <laughs> and then we can uh, publish a policy brief by you. But 
Um, anecdotally, I had uh, I had looked at this for in the dragon's gift um, in terms of Chinese engagement and um, the the foreign aid loans, the ones that are uh, interest free, the what I call the diplomacy loans, they go around uh, Africa. They're very evenly distributed, so there's no. Um, there's no relationship between natural resources and, and so on um, and those loans. However, the, um, the other loans go to places that um, in general, Zambia is a good example of, of a, where this doesn't work, uh, but they generally go to places that could afford them in terms of having some kind of uh, commodity or something that can secure this. So we do see this happening with Angola, you know, that's the largest recipient, so that would bear it out. But then uh, one of the, I think Ethiopia may be the second largest recipient and Ethiopia is, is resource poor. So there's not, um, it's not clear in that regard. So there's, there's uh, demand all over the continent for infrastructure. And many of these governments have been financing uh, infrastructure investments themselves, like Tanzania, you know, they've been hiring um, companies and paying out of Tanzanian revenues. Nigeria has been doing a lot of that as well. So it's, um, there's not one answer for that. Uh, question for, from Bob Ross, professor of international relations at Boston University. He says, China is neither good China nor bad China. Uh, what are Chinese motives in lending to Africa? What, what are its multiple interests and how are those uh, manifested? Well, I'd say there are three. Um, the first is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is, is diplomacy. So um, the Chinese have capital surpluses and they want to use those um, to uh, create a better image or create um, good relationships. And so the concessional loans, the interest-free loans are connected up to China's diplomacy. But the commercial loans, this is about business. And so um, there are two areas of this. And, and one is they, um, it's, it's about um, smoothing the way uh, for construction companies. So it's an entry, uh, it's, it's getting companies in the door. And so the loans are tied to Chinese companies. And so Chinese construction companies get this business. And as I mentioned earlier, it's 30% of the global construction business is from in Africa. So this is, um, this is very, uh, a very large driver um, of this. And then the second is that the lending um, can be tied to investments. And so a number of the loans that we're looking at are for joint ventures. And so like the ones I mentioned in Niger and, and Chad for those productive projects. And so those are, uh, and we've seen this in, in a number of countries as well. And we, just as a side note, one of the things that we're tracking right now is a shift which has been going on, um, certainly in the rhetoric in, in China, the policy rhetoric since at least 2015, if not earlier, but they've been putting much more emphasis on FDI and foreign direct investment as um, you know, in the outward engagement and less emphasis on lending. And so we see that you know, the lending can facilitate the foreign investment through helping to pay um, for shares of that. 
how about for foreign policy leverage? Do they get foreign policy leverage out of out of this? I would say that um, they get foreign policy. Um, they they've been trying to get foreign policy. Um, benefits. So, for example, where we have the term in Washington and in New Delhi, debt trap diplomacy, I think they would call it infrastructure diplomacy. And so that would be, you know, the, these big um, triennial meetings of the China, um, uh, the Forum on China Africa cooperation. They're always announcing all of these uh, areas that they're going to be doing engagement, all of these big lines of credit that will be offered to the continent, you know, or like $20 billion here, $40 billion there, and so on that over the next three years. So that is a dip diplomacy um, angle. And it's, a, it's always very highly covered by the Chinese media. And so they're hoping that this has a lot of play and it shows that China is a, um, a partner for Africa in their development. So a, a beneficent partner, munificent. <laughs> um, but, and then you're probably interested in things like uh, Djibouti. Does the lending provide leverage? And I think this is, the jury is out on that regard. I'm sure that lending, um, I would say that uh, in what I've seen, it's much more of a carrot um, that because they have the lending available, um, it would be dangled there for things like investments that they're interested in. And so that would be, um, we can look all the way back to the early days of Angola um, when they first started negotiating the first uh, credit line in 2000, and, which was signed in 2004. Um, they were also, Chinese companies were also really interested in buying into the Angolan oil sector. And so these negotiations were all going on at the same time. Uh, but they're not dependent on that. You know, the, uh, the Chinese, in Ghana, for example, there's no Chinese capital going into the oil sector, but uh, China Development Bank still offered very large lines of credit that Ghana could secure with oil exports, which are coming from Western companies, um, because of the Chinese construction business that could be generated by that. So it's... Um, I think that what I hear also in Beijing is that they're, the idea that they could, um, you know, they're, they feel very much um, on the left foot or so they, they use an idiom, they, they feel very much uh, when they're trying to negotiate um, debt reductions or debt relief in these countries, they don't feel like they're in the driving seat. You know, they, they feel very much like they don't really have a lot of options. Um, so, the, these countries, um, you know, it's always a negotiation, but the, the countries also um, have a lot of agency in these relationships. And so the idea of them using it as leverage to like get a, a strategic asset of some kind, um, that's, you know, there are lots of easier ways to get assets, like just investing in them in the first place, which is, I think it would be much more preferable to a Chinese company than to uh, go about it through some kind of um, duress process, which would lead to bad public relations um, and bad a bad relationship with the host government. So that's much more how the asset acquisition is likely to go through FDI than through seizing or leveraging assets. Um, I think I misspoke in saying that Bob Ross is from Boston University. Of course, he's at Boston College. The next uh, question is uh, 
from Boston University, Grant Road, who wrote, runs a wonderful uh, biweekly seminar on China. Uh, he says, so Hong Kong reporting this week is that over half of Chinese vaccine is going abroad. How is the health silk road rolling out in Africa? Uh, where are the masks going? Where, where is the vaccine going? How much is aid? How much is purchased? Uh, is significant debt involved? Well, on the debt, I don't think so. I think this is all going to be, um, well, quite, quite a bit of the mask uh, contributions have been grants. You know, these have been donations. Um, mask diplomacy, as some people were calling it. And Jack Ma, <laughs> the uh, interesting, notorious Jack Ma uh, was, you know, he flew to Africa in his private plane to distribute masks around to various countries. Um, but the, I imagine that these are going to be purchases, you know, and sometimes there'll be donations. I know, um, Equatorial Guinea is getting the first vaccines. I don't know if they're purchasing them or donating them. They're oil-rich countries, so they have um, they have plenty of finance to buy them. But uh, let me—that's just me rambling on because I don't really know that much about that topic. Um, but uh, we have uh, in the Washington Post um, coming out in a week or so. We have a series of um, pages of op-eds in the monkey cage. And one of them is focused exactly on this, on the sort of uh, health part of the BRI or the health silk road or whatever you want to call it, written by one of our research um, affiliates, Lena Benabdullah. So I, I recommend that you read her piece when it comes out in a week or two and you'll find out everything you need to know about that grant. And then we can chat about it when I see you later on in the spring. Uh, thanks. Uh, our own Bill Xiao has a, a question. Bill Xiao is one of the co-organizers of, of the series. Everett, uh, thank you for the, such an outstanding and interesting presentation. You educated us. Uh, you invited us right from the beginning to ask a question. Uh, how closely is China following the world standards in making these, let's say, commercial loans? First of all, maybe you want to answer, is there a standard? And then does China follow it? That's a really good question. Um, and, uh, and you sort of, uh, previewed some of my answer when you asked, is there a standard? And it's it's interesting because you, you do see all the time, like China's not following global standards on giving loans. Um, and then we have to think, what are those standards? And there are informal standards, for example, the equator principles, which is, a, a, as Bill knows, this is something that the uh, World Bank through the International Finance Corporation developed as kind of principles about more socially responsible lending, um, and more uh, environmentally responsible and these kinds of things. So some Chinese banks have signed the equator principles and some haven't. So it's very much a kind of bank by bank um, global standard. And then in terms of um, export credits, this is an area in which there are standards, but I wish I, I had, you know, it's part of the lecture that I give on that part of the research. I have a map of, um, 
of the world. And we've highlighted the OECD countries, which really have set the rules for export credits. And you know, they're a tiny number. And it's hardly, I mean, it's hardly a global standard. So do Chinese banks follow the OECD standards on export credits? No, they do not. They are really outside of that rule. And it's um, been very frustrating. Um, Kristen Hopewell has a wonderful book. She's going to be speaking at our conference <laughs> in the spring. A wonderful book in which she details just how uh, problematic the Chinese export credit approach has been to that regime. And then there are, um, there are other regimes that one can look at too. And, and what we looked at was you know, debt relief and that's through the Paris Club. So how closely is China following the Paris Club? Well, now the Paris Club and the G20 have joined together in um, offering uh, a framework for a common framework for debt relief negotiations for official bilateral creditors. So, so I guess, Bill, the, the, at the end of the day, I would say we need to disaggregate China we need to look at what are the different actors. There are commercial banks, there are policy banks, there's the Chinese government through SIDCA, the China International Development Cooperation Agency, um, you know, the Export Credit Agency, the Exxon Bank. These are all different and there are different rules for different actors. And uh, when we talk about, you know, is China following the rules? What I look at is, are these different actors following the rules that apply to them? Um, because as we all know, uh, those of us, and I'm proud to count myself as a sinologist, fragmented authoritarianism, that's, uh, that's the name of the game in Beijing. And uh, there are lots of different fragments there that are doing lending. Uh, Kevin Gallagher is uh, uh, also an expert on Belt and Road, uh, uh, asks a very closely related question. Um, he says, Zambia, Ethiopia, and Chad have gone to the G20 common framework, which requires restructuring and reduction of the net present value of, of debt. Uh, how, how is China likely to react if, if uh, this uh, group of three countries turns into a group of 35? Will China respond by applying common standards uh, to all of them and, and possibly aligning them with the G20 common framework? Well, again, um, Kevin, that's a great question. And let me address it by getting a little technical about, um, for those of you, not, not you, because I know you understand all of the aspects of the G20 arrangement. Um, but the G20 arrangement um, from the beginning of the pandemic, when they formed what was called the Debt, Suspension, Debt Service Suspension Initiative, the DSSI, it only applied to official bilateral creditors. And so um, it's not well known, but uh, it, I hope more people will know it in a little while of, uh, that Germany, Germany's um, uh, their KFW IPEX bank, which is a state-owned bank, is not considered by Germany to be a bilateral official creditor. And uh, China does not consider China Development Bank to be a bilateral official creditor. And, and you and I have discussed this, Kevin. Um, so both of us think that, that the Chinese are fudging it on there. But within the rules of um, how these things are decided, um, <laughs> that's what they decided. And there really isn't a global rule 
for what should be considered a bilateral official creditor. So, um, so what we we also, as I mentioned, there are over thirty Chinese lenders operating in Africa, and um, most of them are companies. They're commercial companies. They're considered private um, actors, private lenders in the World Bank data, and uh, and by the Chinese as well. So, none of those are part of the G20 um, common framework right now. So. Along with bondholders and other um, private entities that are not um, included in the framework, the Chinese commercial banks and uh, all of these uh, suppliers and so on, and China Development Bank, more controversially, are outside of that process. Um, and so it's going to be China Exim Bank and Sitka that are going to be inside doing that debt restructuring. So then um, what will they do when, and they do expect that everybody is going, you know, or not everybody. Um, what our data shows, and this is, I'm gonna launch onto another half hour talk, but just very briefly, that there are, are seven countries in Africa that, are, um, that were in debt distress and problematic before the pandemic. I'm not sure what it's going to show afterwards. There, and we, we really don't know what's happening in terms of how quickly these economies are going to respond. And it may be that the regular um, G20 debt service suspension, which is now going to the middle of this year, that if that's uh, extended again to the end of this year, that might that kind of suspension might work for quite a few of those countries. And then the problem ones will be negotiated, but they were all problematic before. Um, Chad's main problem, by the way, is not Chinese lending. It's this big Glencore, um, billions from Glencore that they're having trouble servicing. So that, and Glencore is not part of this problem. So. Uh, we have a question from Austin Jordan, who's a PhD uh, candidate in, um, in government at Harvard. Uh, he asks whether there is any effort by the Chinese government to rein in lending by non-state firms, uh, especially to, to Zambia, uh, in, in order to control the, the unsustainable debt and the potential diplomatic consequences? That's a really good question. Um, and it's one that, um, that I really don't know the answer to in, in terms of hard evidence. Um, you know, I haven't had any interviews in which I've actually asked that question. And um, so all I can tell you is what I see in the data. And we have been seeing um, more delegation to firms. So rather than reining them in. So it's been um, more firms are getting involved in providing finance. And that goes along, you know, they're doing it partly uh, suppliers credits and then partly equity. So that there's been a much more of a mixing of the different kinds of finance in projects more recently. So that's, um, and that's something that we're exploring through another research project, which is looking at um, public private partnerships and how those are being negotiated in Africa. But, um, and that, cause they're negotiated by companies just as in Sri Lanka, it was not sort of China but China merchants that negotiated that investment. Uh, Charles Ray, uh, uh, who's a master's student at, at Boston University, uh, says there are ongoing investigations about corruption in 
Sonangal. Uh, when Chinese lenders participated in Sonangal's recapitalization, were they unaware of the widespread corruption or do they turn a blind eye to this kind of thing? Um, I'm sure they're very aware of corruption. And I'm sure they're as aware of corruption as, as Bill Overholt's banks were aware of problems with the Angolan government <laughs> during the Civil War. You know, the Angolan government was, is, um, has never been a probity, you know, kind of a icon of probity. Uh, it's, it's um, so yes, but what they do, they, they have figured that this um, China Development Bank is a little bit different because they do transfer funds. China Exim Bank, on the other hand, they've got, because they keep all of the money outside of Angola, they actually, um, can deal with the corruption embezzlement risks. Um, and then it's it's the corruption risk, which is like adding percentages onto the value of projects or poor quality, all of these kinds of things. The Angolans, by the way, they've hired um, a German firm, Golf, a big uh, engineering, engineering firm, and they're supposed to be supervising the project implementation uh, for the Chinese project. So that was, it's an interesting way of getting um, another actor involved in, in trying to monitor you know and solve principal agent problems that the government would would otherwise face so um so yeah they would be aware of sonengo's corruption issues and um i think it's very interesting to look at the timing of all of this um in terms of the transition the political transition in sonengo and if this is something that interests you uh, i would encourage you to do a case study on that because um there's a lot of material in portuguese uh, about Sonengol, and we've been, um, it, it's just a really interesting case. So looking at the timing of these different negotiations and the political transition in Sonegal would be fascinating. I encourage you to do it yourself. <laughs> Steven Zhu asks, does Chinese capital squeeze out capital of other countries and entities or uh, does it mainly fill a gap where, where other countries are not investing? Well, over and over and over again, um, people comment who, who focus more on investment than I do, but they comment how the Chinese are, are going to places that are more risky because all the good stuff has already been taken. So it's, a, you know, the, the Chinese are latecomers and that's why they're in these, um, they have that's why in um, Zambia, for example, the copper mines that the Chinese got are all the poor quality ones, whereas the, the better copper mines were all um, non-Chinese investors. And, but interestingly, as, um, as Zambia, you know, Zambia was sort of forced to privatize during the structural adjustment period. And so it went to all these other investors and the Chinese got a little bit of the copper then. But slowly after, they've been there now for more than 20 years investing in copper. And um, they've been slowly buying up uh, from these um, Western investors who have a much more short-term horizon. You know, they have to meet their quarterly profits. And when they don't, they want to get out. And their shareholders say, you know, that's a losing mine, get rid of it. The Chinese go, oh, <laughs> we'll take it, <laughs> we'll buy it. Uh, because they have this um, patient capital approach, which they can do because they don't all have a, that quarterly bottom line that they have to have to meet. So, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs>
we, we have a number of questions about the New York Times and how how does this kind of misinformation not only happen but continue year after year and uh, what can be done to hold them accountable? It's remarkable that that there's scholarship like yours uh, and. and other people's and uh, uh, doesn't seem to connect with the myths uh, in the media and, and the myths in, in parts of the US government. Uh, um, I think we have several questions here put together. This is a huge issue because myths are driving the American perception of of, of uh, China and American policy toward China, and uh, I would say as much in the Biden administration as in the Trump administration. So, uh, you you ha have ideas about uh, why there are such serious disconnects and and what might be done about it? I think there are uh, a few things going on. Um, well, let me tell you a little bit about my experience with, with um, you know, I started a blog uh, after the Dragon's Gift came out because there were just so many cases like this where I saw um, reporters just not really, you know, kind of not not really investigating things very carefully. And so I would write about it on my blog, and um, and they, you know, like giving evidence and and what what I had seen and so on. So I did this like when the Economist was reporting and and so on. And I have seen the reporting not not because of me, but just as people have learned, they've uh, the reporting for the the Financial Times and the Economist has gotten much much better. Um, when the the second time that reporting team at the New York Times wrote, um, and you know, they made those errors about Chinese lending. I thought, well, I could just, you know, write about it on my blog, which I was tempted to just like hammer them. But I decided to email them, so I emailed them both, um, and I just said, look, you know, I think you're wrong on this. The evidence is all um, against this interpretation, and it's really it's problematic. And I gave them actually a copy of Meg's case, <laughs> Meg Rithwire's Harvard Business School case on Hammond Toto, which I think is just, you know, it's wonderful. It's the best um, analysis. And I linked them to some other work. Um, and one of them was very uh, appreciative and the other was very defensive. So, you know, reporters are human. They, um, but, but I imagine that both of those reporters will, will write about Chinese, um, lending a little more carefully next time they do it. So, you know, there's there's that human side to it too. There's a kind of a, a wave of understanding that um, people jump on and they're not experts um, and they're busy. So there's that. And then the second thing just is that the security climate for reasons uh, in Beijing and reasons in Washington has just gotten so grim. And um, and related to that is the the prism through which um, people with power view China now. And Bill, you've written about this, Bill Overholt. 
um, that it's, it's this security prism and this military prism. And there's really not an understanding of um, the development side of things, you know, the whole attraction of, um, and what the Chinese can offer as a development partner to those two other countries. And so in Washington, you know, the whole focus on development, we used to have defense development and diplomacy. They're all part of the, like how the State Department approached things. And now it's it, with the money anyways, like it's all defense. And so, you know, the interests are kind of tied up in that. And the development voice um, is both not very well informed and, and small, weak. Thanks. Uh, we're running out of time. Uh, one uh, participant asks for a link to the April conference. How, how do they, how do people connect with that, your April conference? Um, well, I'm at uh, Johns Hopkins University, SICE, and uh, we will be putting out links to, we have a website, you know, the China Africa Research Initiative. Um, I can share my screen again except I have so many different things up here now that I don't know what you'll share screen. Can you see? Probably not. I'm not sure how I've, um, do you see that China Africa Research Initiative? Anyway, that's, that's where I am. And um, you can look at our website. It's- I can Google it. Yeah, you can Google us. Uh, it's easy to find and we will you can register for it um, I think we'll start opening that up in March probably well we're out of time but I just want to thank you very much on behalf of the Fairbank Center you've got what's on one end a, a fairly technical subject and on the other hand it, it just has the highest uh, policy implications and and human implications for life in these countries. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Bill. Thank you for, uh, thank you. for inviting me yesterday. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for your good questions. Thank you.